welcome to Lending Forward, a podcast where we're lending every bit of what we know to our listeners. From real conversations and lessons learned deep within the industry to education and forward thinking, together we're Lending Forward. And as always, don't forget to subscribe to our channels and connect with us on www.atlanticbay.com. Atlantic Bay Mortgage Group, LLC, NMLS number 72043, NMLSconsumeraccess.org is an equal opportunity lender. Located at 600 Lynn Haven Parkway, Suite 203, Virginia Beach, Virginia, 23452. We heard from Barry in February, and that was obviously eye-opening and a lot has happened. A lot has changed since then. We've honestly had so much insight from you, Dan, being on some of our sales retreats, talking to us and kind of showing us the numbers and laying it out in clear form where people can take that and run to their agents with this information and their borrowers. But where do you kind of see everything going for the next six months of the year? One of the things that everybody's keeping their eye on is the GDP numbers because everybody's now kind of jumping on the bandwagon with what we've been talking about for a while, which is, are we headed for a recession? And I certainly think that we are. And one of the kind of rule of thumbs for a recession is two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. And we recently just got final results for the first quarter, which was negative 1.6%. And now there's been estimates from the Atlanta Fed, one of the organizations out there that puts out some of these estimates and their estimate is showing negative 2.1%. And they've revised that down pretty sharply after some of the recent economic data that we got, because before that they were estimating 0% GDP. So this is uh, something that if it comes to fruition, which I think it probably will, it means we will have two consecutive quarters of negative GDP or gross domestic product in the United States. Now, the person that is the kind of referee for calling if we're in a recession or not is the NBER or the National Bureau of Economic Research. And they have a little bit more of a complicated definition than just two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. They want to make sure that the economic slowdown has a certain amount of duration, meaning it's not just a very short slowdown, as well as depth, meaning it's it's significant, and then diffusion, meaning that it is widespread throughout the economy. But then they do go ahead to caveat that and they say, well, if you have really, really, you want to meet all the criteria, but if you have some really, really sharp declines, like we saw after COVID, even though it wasn't for too long of a period of time, they'll then classify that as a recession. Now, I don't think that we've seen all of those criteria met, but I do see signs of the economy slowing I think one of the big ones is going to be if we see the unemployment rate start to tick up, and we're going to be getting a very important number coming just tomorrow, actually, or I'm not sure when this is going to be released, but Friday the 8th, we'll be getting uh, the BLS jobs report, which will show us job growth. And you know they're only estimating 250 job creations, 250,000, and they're expecting the unemployment rate to remain at 3.6% for the fourth month in a row. But I wouldn't be surprised to start to see that tick up. And that's going to be another telltale sign that we're headed for a recession. So whether or not you know the NBER is going to say that we're in a recession over the next month or two, or if maybe it's going to be towards the end of the year or beginning of 2023, I think it's probably more going to be towards the end of the year, beginning of 2023. We're definitely heading for a recession. And there's many, many indicators out there. But going back to the unemployment rate, you know, this is always extremely reliable. Because if you think about the way it works, most people, I think, would conceptually think that a recession occurs when the unemployment rate is at its highest point. So I see people talking about this in the media. They're like, well, unemployment rates at 3.6%. You know, how are we going to go into a recession? But if you look at every market cycle in the past, the recession occurs when we reach the lowest level and then begin to turn higher. 
So I think if you see some, some increases over the next few months, that could be enough because the way it works is this, is that when the economy is booming, the economy is going well, the labor market's tight, right? And it's tight currently. But then when things slow down, one of the first things that businesses do is they reduce headcount, right? They're slowing, so they have to cut workers. But then that has a snowball effect because the people that were just laid off, well, what do they do? They change their spending behavior. They're not going to go out to eat as much, to the movies, to the retail stores. And then all those businesses that were relying on that income, they're going to slow down. They're going to have to lay people off. And it's kind of like a perpetual cycle there. And that's why when you see this happen, you see the unemployment rate start to move higher, you get a recession, and then it really shoots up. So these are some indicators that I'm looking for. But one of the first canary in the coal mine spots that you'll see it is in a report that comes out every Thursday called Initial Jobless Claims. So this is a report that measures people that were just laid off, and then they go ahead and file for unemployment benefits for the first time. We've been seeing it consistently edge higher. If you see the four-week moving average of it, it's at the highest level since December. But you know, anecdotally, you see these headlines all over the place, right? Where companies are were planning to or going to be removing 20% of our workforce or 10% of our workforce, right? So we're seeing a lot of the writing on the wall out there. And we're also seeing symptoms of a weak economy. And what I mean by that is, is there's something called the yield curve, right? And the yield curve is normally up and to the right, meaning that one of the ones that people like to look at is the spread between the two-year treasury and the 10-year treasury. So normally you would think, hey, if I put my money away for 10 years versus two years, I'm going to get a higher rate of return, right? That kind of just makes sense and is normal. And that is what a normal yield curve is. But when there's weakness in the economy, there's points in history where you can actually see the two-year yield higher than the 10-year yield. Now, that sounds backwards or upside down or inverted. And sure enough, if you look at the yield curve today, it is inverted. The two-year yield, at least of just a little while ago when I was looking at it, was about five basis points higher than the 10-year yield. And if you look historically, Almost every time you see that occur, you do have a recession to follow. And then let's not forget, in the background, you have inflation as the number one problem in the US, 8.6%. And you have a Federal Reserve who, in my opinion, has been clueless and they're way behind the eight ball. And now they are scrambling to try to curb inflation. So what are they doing? They're hiking rates, but they're not hiking mortgage rates. They're hiking something called the federal funds rate, which is an overnight rate that banks lend to one another. But there's a lot of things tied to the Fed funds rate. You know, your short-term treasuries, your credit cards, your car loans. And as the Fed is hiking, it does have an effect over time of slowing down the economy. But remember why they're doing it. Also, personal loans, small business loans, which is a big one because the small businesses, if they could right. borrow a rate that's, you know, plus X to the Fed funds rate, and that was at zero for, for a long period of time. And now the Fed plans on hiking it up towards 3%. That makes borrowing much, much more expensive. And we're very much a credit economy. You know, it's estimated for about every dollar in the system, there's $17 of credit. So this has an impact, but not right away. The markets can try to price it in right away, but it's almost like, you know, Taylor, if I was sick and I went to the doctor and I took some medication, you know, I'm not going to be feeling 100% better in five minutes. It takes some time to impact my immune system, but this will play out. So you have an economy that's already showing weakness, already slowing down. And then you have a Federal Reserve that is purposely hiking rates to destroy the demand side of the economy to slow things down further in order to get this 8.6% inflation under control. Because listen, that's the biggest problem that we have right now. The Fed let things get way out of hand. We had tons of stimulus. 
Supply chains are still crippled from COVID. And of course, you have these geopolitical tensions out there. And I don't want to get political on this, but we had inflation well before, big inflation problems well before the Russia-Ukraine conflict, but it's not helping. Not helping with oil prices, not helping with food prices. You know, there's many out there that think we might have somewhat of a food crisis in our in our near future as well with everything happening. But this is the one problem is, is that, you know, if we do go into a recession, typically, you know, people wait for something called the Fed put, which means the Fed, usually what they'll do is they'll try to slow down the economy. They'll hike rates when things get a little out of hand. They'll get inflation under control. And then once we see a recession, the Fed will go ahead and turn around and then they'll start cutting rates or they'll start reinvesting in mortgage bonds and treasuries. Whereas right now, they're trying to reduce their balance sheet that they've amassed from all their buying of over $9 trillion. But because inflation is so high, the Fed may be forced, and they just released the Fed minutes the other day, where you know they're sticking to their guns and flexing their muscle that, hey, we are dedicated no matter what to curbing inflation. Fed may be forced to continue to hike rates, even if they do see us go into a recession. So it's an interesting time. And listen, recessions are never great. I do think it's something that our economy needs to go through. But one silver lining out there is that you do typically see interest rates come down during recessionary periods because they are deflationary and interest rates are most closely tied to inflation. Remember, inflation erodes the value of your dollars, but especially a, a long duration bonds fixed return over time. So if inflation goes up, well, that's why mortgage rates have gone up pretty sharply, two and a half percent from this time last year. But if inflation starts to come down, the comparisons get a little tougher on inflation. The Fed rate hikes start to take impact. We go into a recession. I think you will see interest rates moderate and we'll see some relief. And I think that that will provide a good opportunity for the loans that everybody's doing today to have a refinance opportunity. And then that brings us to housing. You know, there's a lot of different opinions on housing out there. You know, you have the media who is always negative and they've been calling for a housing bubble for the last, you know, 10 years or so. And, you know, I could pull up article after article over the last 10 years. We're in a housing bubble. Home ownership doesn't build wealth. Well, you know, we saw 20% appreciation just last year, but the last many years, we've seen some really meaningful wealth creation through home ownership. And while I think that we're seeing a slowdown, no question about it in the housing market, and for good reason, right? I mean, home prices are elevated, interest rates are a lot higher, and there's right. no inventory out there. So you combine all those things together, it's no wonder why sales numbers have been declining, application numbers have been declining. We know refis are down almost 80% year over year. But purchases are still hanging in there pretty good considering everything. But does that mean that, you know, we're going to go into a housing bubble, especially if we get a recession? Now, I don't think that it does mean that. And if you like to compare it to something that's still on everybody's mind when they hear the word housing bubble, let's compare it to 2007 before we had the housing bubble and then the eventual recession. You know, a lot of people, I think, make the mistake to believe that the recession back then caused the housing bubble, but it was actually the opposite. The housing bubble really dragged the economy into a recession, and we saw home prices decline rather significantly. But you know, the speculation back then, the appreciation and everything, that was widely driven by available credit. You know, you had a lot of not the best loans being done out there, fog up a mirror, 585 FICO, no income, no assets. 
You know, here's four homes in a condo, right? So very different environment today from a loan quality standpoint, much stricter underwriting guidelines. If you look at some things that CoreLogic puts out there as far as delinquencies and loan performance, about as healthy as it's ever been. Foreclosure is still extremely, extremely low, 0.2%. And when you look at the supply and demand dynamics, they couldn't be more opposite. You know, back in 2007, there was a lot of overbuilding out there. There was a glut of supply. You had 3.81 million homes for sale. Today, the most recent numbers from the NAR is that there's like 1.16 million homes for sale. So 2.65 million less homes for sale. And then at the same time, you have a lot more as far as demand in households. So back then, 116 million households. Today, 130 million households. So on your demand component, you have 14 million more households on the supply, 2.65 million less homes for sale. And that doesn't even necessarily tell the full story because in those inventory numbers, they count homes under contract as inventory because they haven't closed yet. But you and I both know, listen, maybe some of those homes don't close, but that's not available inventory, right? You can't buy a home under contract. So if you look at active listings, it's less than 600,000. So the inventory is still extremely tight. I think builders are going to have challenges trying to keep up. I don't think they'll be able to. You look at starts, you look at permits, especially on the single family side, those are down. And demand's still pretty strong, albeit not even close to what it was the last few years. But you know, look at some things like average days on market. Last month, that went from a blistering 17 days to 16 days. And the amount of homes still selling in bidding wars above the asking price, anywhere between 60 to 70% if you're looking at CoreLogic as well as Redfin. You know, Redfin 60%, CoreLogic's over 70%. So I'm still seeing, I think, pretty constructive housing data out there. But I'm not thinking that we're going to see 20% appreciation again. I think that we will see it slow, which is healthy. But even if we got 4% appreciation in the, in the 12 months going forward or 5% appreciation, still very meaningful for wealth creation. I think if we look at 2022 as a whole, because we already are seven months in or six months in, right? We're already, I can't believe we're already halfway through the year. Mm-hmm. You already have appreciation gains built in, baked in there, right? So if you take a look at the reports we were getting from Kay Schiller, FHFA, we're still seeing 1.82% gains on a month over month basis. Now this is looking back a few months, but for the full year of 2022, I think we'll see 8.5% appreciation nationwide maybe. But if we were looking at today going forward, a year from today, I think you could see mid-single digit appreciation nationwide. So you know, let's just do some quick math. Let's say somebody was buying a, I don't know, a, a $500,000 home and appreciation was 4% over the next 12 months. Well, that means you'd gain $20,000 in appreciation. But if you put 10% down on the home, your investment was 50,000. So 20,000, your gain divided by your $50,000 investment, it's a 40% return. And that's the concept of leverage. So I don't think that we're going to see, there's a difference between a housing bubble and sharp price declines and home price appreciation slowing. And I think a lot of people in the media will get this wrong. You know, if you see appreciation, the most recent numbers we're seeing is 20% year over year. And this was two months ago on a year over year basis. Let's just say we see this in the coming months really start to slow when you get 5% or 4%. The media is going to say, oh, home prices are going down. No, it means that the pace of home price gains is just going up at a slower pace. You know, the example I like to use is that we're not going 100 miles an hour down the highway anymore. Maybe we slow to 20 miles an hour, but we're not putting the car in reverse. Now, that's not to say that there's not some markets that may be susceptible to some price declines, right? I mean, real estate can be very localized, meaning 
we take a look at things from a nationwide perspective and like a real macro view. But if you drill down to specific markets, there certainly could be some that have been overdone, right? And there certainly could be situations where people have individually put themselves in somewhat of a housing bubble. If you're paying $200,000 over asking price, you know, you could be in a little individual trouble as far as in that personal (laughs) situation. But much like if we were in like a really, really big bull stock market, as a whole, the S&P is going to be much higher. But if you drill down into the S&P, not every stock in there is going to be green. You're going to have some stocks that underperform and that are actually you know, negative per se. I think it's very true, similarly, for what we're going to see on the housing market. But as a whole, I think you're still going to see modest depreciation. And I don't think the supply and demand dynamics are going to change too much to change that. Wow. That was a lot of goodness right there. What is the message right now to borrowers who are sitting on their laurels? Maybe they got pre-called in March and they're thinking, I don't know. So what does the tailwind of the recession, what do you think that's going to bring? I wouldn't be waiting because I think we're still going to see appreciation. And I, I can empathize. It's not easy to find a home. It's more expensive to finance a home and, and home prices are higher. But if you believe in in kind of the scenario that I just laid out there, if you wait, you're certainly going to be buying a home at a higher price even still, because right. I'm still expecting modest levels of appreciation. Rates, I don't think we'll see rates really start to come down or see much relief until maybe the fourth quarter or beginning of next year. So I wouldn't say you should wait. I'd say you should refund, you should buy a home today, but you know, with a mortgage professional that's not just thinking about this transaction, but that's thinking about how this sets up with the next transaction. Meaning, where possible, you shouldn't be doing all kinds of upfront fees that's going to take 3 to 5 years to break even because we know that you probably have an opportunity over the next 12 months to refinance that purchase that you're doing today to save some money. Now, it brings up another topic. You know, we're not the only ones that think rates are going to come down investors do too. And what I mean by that is, is that a lot of people out there are wondering, well, why is it so hard to get a zero point rate? And the reason is just that there is a lot of fear of prepayment risk, meaning you know, everybody talks about a par rate. I don't think that they, they really do that correctly. Meaning you know, when an investor buys a loan, they're always doing so at a premium, right? So maybe it's like 102 or 103, right? So there always has to be some meat on the bone there for everybody to make money in the transaction. But then how does the investor make their money back? Well, through the yield or through the interest rate. But if there's a belief out there that rates are going to come down over the next several months, and then people are going to refinance and prepay those loans, the investor doesn't get a chance to make their money back. So the investor is also agreeing with us. The secondary market is also agreeing with us that they believe we're going to see a slowdown in the economy and that we're going to see rates come down. So yes, in some cases, they have some some things that can protect them from prepayments and such. But by and large, what they're doing is they are trying to make it as painful as possible to get a zero-point loan so they can ensure that they're going to make their money, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's awesome. This was so great. I know people from February until now were like, we needed this forecast and just to kind of bring to light what is going to happen, maybe set some expectations with our borrowers and our agents so that they're all in kind of cahoots, if you will, so that they know, hey, let's educate you. And a lot of people, you you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's the media that's bringing all of this to light in a negative manner. And it's hard to sift through that when it's being thrown at you so much. But hearing stuff like this and being able to promote these kinds of conversations and shift the narrative a little bit is extremely helpful. So thank you. Thanks for having me, Taylor. 
Thanks again for listening to the Lending Forward podcast powered by Atlantic Bay Mortgage Group. Don't forget to tune in next week and make sure you subscribe to our channel. Remember, we all play a part in Lending Forward. So go lend something forward today.